Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming outside me today. Today, we're talking with Nick Otto from the Huntivore podcast here on episode three of the Average Jack Archery podcast. Nick, even though he is part of the Sportsman's Nation, but we'll let him talk about that in a little bit, even though he is part of the industry and has a fantastic podcast of his own, I and he probably would tell you would consider himself to be just a normal bow hunter, just like you and me. And again, if you want to be part of the normalcy, if you will, jumping on the podcast, please do send an email to AverageJackArchery at gmail.com. Find me at AverageJackArchery on Facebook and Instagram, as well as on YouTube. We'll get you on the podcast representing all 50 states. And from the great state of Michigan, we have Nick Otto from the Huntivore Podcast. Nick, how are you doing, buddy? Oh, dude, I am stoked to be on uh, here with Average Jack. I do. I feel like I'm an like average Nick here with, uh, with Nate Sellers. So this is, uh, this is exciting. It's only fitting because, you know, I was on one of the first few episodes of the Hunt of War podcast, which we will plug in the description. And of course, you'll definitely check out Nick there on his social media platforms. But I was on one of the first episodes there and it seemed only fitting to return the favor and have you back here. Uh, and uh, instead of you picking my brain, I'm going to pick yours a little bit. And um, I figure we might as well just jump right into it. So for those that uh, don't follow Nick already, uh, he is a flip-flop shooter in the sense that he goes between compound and trad. Uh, but unlike me, uh, he is not a spoiled archery brat, and he is not afraid uh, to shoot a more budget-friendly uh, setup. It's still a very solid setup, but a more budget-friendly setup. So Nick, why don't you run us through your compound uh, setup here, your, your bow, you know, your draw length, your poundage, uh, and then, of course, I'm more interested in the arrow because even though you have a budget-friendly compound, your arrow setup is just the bee's knees, what you're shooting at Whitetails there in Michigan. So go ahead and run away with that. Yeah, I was as I was going through my setup and trying to think about it, I, I was laughing at myself because, yeah, I definitely have the budget bow, but bougie arrow. Um, the <laughs> bow actually was my first <laughs> my first real bow that I bought myself. Um, I had a hand-me-down starting out. Uh, I started hunting in 2010, uh, so I was definitely late to the game. Really wanted to get into hunting, and it was really food-driven at that point. Um, I grew up in the meat industry, and so then wanted to switch that over to acquiring my own. So using a friend's hand-me-down and kind of learn the tricks of the trade there, learning how not to slap my arm, I was then ready. I think it was 2016 either 2016 or 2017, I went and I bought um, a budget bow. It was a Quest Forge. Um, it's got 70-pound limbs on it. Um, currently running a drop-away rest on it. Um, oh, I can't remember what the drop-away rest is on it. But I stuck with a fixed five-pin sight. And my draw length, I'm, I'm a bit shorter and squattier. Uh, than you. So like 27, I think is where my yeah. compound can reach. Um, and that gets my kisser button right there to the corner of my mouth. Um, I did go with some vapor. I got a new vapor trail uh, string on it. So that's, that's helped out. Um, uh, as far as a stabilizer, I, you know, again, with the budget thing, I pulled the stabilizer off the old bow, shoved that on the front, and then it came with this rubber donker that was going to sit on the front of the forge. That was all that was there. Well, I end up, there's threads on the, uh, the old stabilizer. So I threw the second stabilizer, second stabilizer on the end. It's definitely not a pretty setup. 
it's definitely rat rotted. It sounds like it's like twice the amount of deadening and stabilization power. That's all you're going for. It's just it is better. I don't have to worry about washers or, you know, is the bee sting better than the tongue, whatever other name brand. Yeah. Yeah. I just slapped this together and that. Yeah. And it, it started as a joke. I did after talking to you a year ago and you really pushing to get into doing a winter league, making sure I'm shooting all year round. Uh, I threw that on as a joke because there was several guys there that had super long target bows. They had the stabilizer reaching way out. I'm like, heck, do you just put the arrow on and poke the paper? Is that yeah, how you do that? Yeah. <laughs> and just to be a kind of a smart ass, I went ahead and threw the second stabilizer on and I shot the best round that night. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> yeah, I'll take that. This is fantastic. That's all. Because so if you were to if you were to ballpark it though, like what is probably the length of both of those combined? Um, they are between six and eight inches. They're, they're probably, yeah, let's say six inches. So I'm only reaching out maybe a foot to 15 okay. inches away from the bow. Sure. But, and that's like a long, or I mean, that's a, I would say a long hunting rig anyway, Yeah. but you know, I'm not having to, I don't have a back bar or nothing. I haven't figured out how to, how to bend bolts yet to make my own, <laughs> own back bar. But yeah. as far as a lot of the hunting rigs that I've seen, at least in our neck of the woods, like guys are going a little bit longer and they rain. It kind of is comparable with that. For those people that don't know, Quest is made by G5, which is a really good, you know, uh, they make the prime bows and they're kind of their more budget minded line, just like how Mission is the budget minded mind of Matthews. So it's a single cam bow. It's a little bit slower. You know, it comes with a lot of package deals, but it's still really good bow setup. And even um, though people, go and buy a budget setup they can go and get better accessories for it now granted nick is kind of piecing together some sausage links here to throw on the front end of his bow to, to have this longer stabilizer but this is something that i tell people a lot that bows today even in the budget lines are just really top-notch stuff and they're really outperforming what you can do as the archer and particularly you know if you're in your first couple of years of bow hunting you know, for me, I might be able to tell a difference because I've been shooting 16th now. This will be my 17th season. But for somebody like Nick and for you at home, if you're within that first couple of years of bow hunting and just shooting a bow in general, you really can't tell the difference. And even though his stabilizer setup might sound goofy, it's clearly working. And that's something that you at home need to really think about, um, that you don't have to go out with the bee stingers and the, and the, you know, the high end stuff if it's not in your price range because the stuff that you can piece together at home will work just as well. So, yeah, it's, it's great. You went on that. And I would even say that like the brains behind that, just like with a, with a mission bow from Matthews or my quest line that's coming off of prime or and G5, that the same minds are behind the engineering of that. They have looked at those tolerances. They've looked at um, the machining of it, but a lot of it is just even the material. Whereas mine may be a cast riser, I'm not going to know the difference between a cast and a uh, milled uh, riser. Whereas you're probably going to feel that just in the amount of arrows you're putting through or the performance you're looking for. But it's a great thing to throw on for a marketing thing. And I think people get swept up in that. But using just some of those different materials, whether it be a polymer or yeah, a cast, it still can be a lethal machine and it can be very accurate. You know, it, it comes to the 
a, the person behind the riser that really needs to put in the work that uh, is going to allow you to be accurate. Right. As you've said, you've told me multiple times, it's always the Indian. It's never the bow, you know, <laughs> and that's and that's truly what it is. And this is, you know, something that as we get into the into the summer months here and as we approach more and more to the hunting season, you know, it's really cool, too. You know, you have guys online like the hunting public, for example, and, you know, they're shooting bear archery. Now, bear does make some good bows and their top end stuff, but their budget minded stuff and quests with their budget minded stuff and mission. They're just top stuff. They are, they they are going to do everything you need to do, in particular as a bow hunter and more and not absolutely destroy your budget and destroy your bank account and destroy your marriage because you didn't tell your wife you're buying a flagship level bow. And that is something I think that people, because of guys like Nick coming onto the podcast, need to be constantly reminded of that it's it's cool to see guys like me and other people on the YouTube and the archery industry shooting these high-end things, but really you can get away with a more budget setup. And I think that's, re- I'm really happy. I mean, because you're experiencing good success with it, right? You actually uh, harvested, what, one deer at least with it last year? Yep. I had the opportunity to harvest a deer last year. Um, if I, time is now the essence, it's not necessarily the archery or the accuracy. It's the time trying to get back out there. Um, but yeah, I had the, it was actually the longest shot that I have taken with archery equipment. It was a 40 yard shot, uh, broadside on a doe and it couldn't have gone any better. Um, the performance of the bow was there. I had put the time in to work with it, to tune it out. And I mean, even yet, just like you said, with the budget aspect of it, you're adding the different components to it. You know, you take it into a a bow shop and they're going to twist the yokes so that you're center shot. And as you continue to work on your own tuning in the backyard, the the rest does need to be tweaked. And well, am, am I getting my form right? Um, yeah, it's lethal. I have taken a deer with that bow every year, whether it be uh, a doe or a small buck or back in 2017 when I thought it was a doe and it definitely was a button buck. <laughs> we can go into that. Hey, it was close to being a Michigan 11 boy right there. That's, exactly. We PA boys, oh. we know all about that. <laughs> it ate well. I can tell you that for oh, sure. They, they're delicious, man. It's like eating ice cream off the backstrap there. It's good. So all of that to be said that, yeah, it, just as you're saying, like the work that's being put in, the bow is going to do the job. And even at that lower level and at the package too, if, if I can get a, another, if I can get a site that's put on, that's going to be a five pin site. Great. I've got something that I can use. I don't have to go out and now find that component and spend right. extra for it. That can be next year. You know, that you can always build that up at that point. Um, you kind of even look at it like cars too. There's a, you know, you'll have your LT series truck and then you have your LS series truck and yeah, you get more bells and whistles, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's going to work the way that you drive it. So it's just the fit and trim that you want with it basically. Now you did buy the package, right? Like yours came, like you bought, you just went with the G5 side, the headlock quiver and all that sort of stuff. Was there was there anything in the back of your mind was like, nah, I'd rather buy a bare bow and then just right off the bat buy better accessories? Or were you just like, no, that's going to work for me and that's what I needed to do? That's what I, I saw the, yeah, it was the ready to hunt. That was the, the thing is I, you know, I went to my bow shop and it was sitting there, all the pieces that were there. And when I did pick up a bow, I wanted that package to be put together. I wanted those accessories. Um, and I did. I shot several, uh, several bows that day. Um, I shot my, my forge, 
I shot um, an upper level part of the G5 uh, lineup. It was like the G5 flagship. And going side by side on those, the, the flagship model was really geared for the speed. And the, uh, the brace height was much shorter. And it felt like it was fighting me all the time that I would draw it back down in the boat. And it's like, I couldn't, it, it, there was zero value to that. But then I would pick up the forge and it had a longer brace height. And when I pulled that back, I fell right into that valley. So I was able to hold and I was able to feel comfortable in that. Um, and so again, that was with that budget aspect too of it, it, it adds forgiveness into it because it's not such geared towards speed how fast can i send this arrow it's you know you find that valley and it really did feel way more comfortable especially for somebody that's getting started you know you want something that you're going to be confident in that brought confidence as opposed to the other bow where i kept having to fight to hold it back and that didn't instill any confidence at that point right i'm and i'm glad you brought that up too because you know, a lot of people will see these budget compounds and, and these more budget bows, and they see that the speed number is significantly slower. And they see like, in, and by, you know, solid 20 to 30 feet per second slower. And they're like, oh man, I'm losing a lot of performance, you know? And then, yeah, if you, and if you kind of think about it a little bit further, you know, that's just, that's the speed with 70 pounds, 30 inch draw and a five grain per pound arrow, which is not a hunting setup. You know, and for most people, you know, I'm a 31 to 31 and a half inch draw. You are not right. And you're more indicative of the 28 to 29 inch guys. So I can make any bow a speed bow. I just have such a long draw length. And so people will see this, you know, this slower bow or it, you know, in your case, it's a single cam, which, you know, a lot of people kind of give bad rap because it's quote unquote outdated technology. And it's not because it shoots arrows down range. <laughs> you know, a trad bow is outdated technology, but it still works. You know, that's kind of thing. We'll get to trad bows later. but People see that, but the, what you what you forget is that when you're giving up speed, you're gaining shootability, you're gaining smoothness, you're gaining that valley. It doesn't want to rip your shoulder off. Seventy pounds feels like sixty pounds, and this is something that I I'm glad you brought up because as somebody as a new archer, you should be looking for slow bows. You should be looking for a slower setup because it's going to be more forgiving. It's the brace height from you know where the string sits at rest to the grip is going to be further because the closer that gets to the grip, the more chance you're going to hit your arm. You're going to slap your wrist, and that's no fun. And so that is something really important that oh you're you're losing some speed. You know you, maybe you're losing some quote unquote power. You're really not, and you're picking the out the benefit of picking up some smoothness and some easier draw cycle, particularly, you know, you hunt Michigan, I hunt PA, it's cold. We're packed in layers. It's hard to draw anyway, then throw all that on there. It just gets worse. It actually is more of a benefit and it outweighs the con of being a little bit slower. So I'm glad you brought that up because that's just a, a, a huge piece. I think people overlook. You are shooting some seriously heavy arrows and i mean as troy fowler of the ranch fair would say street legal ashby so you're shooting a budget-minded bow setup but your arrow setup is a little bit more on the higher price end but it's definitely a little bit higher in lethality i think because of the weight and the broadhead that you're shooting which i'm very interested in as well um so why don't you break that down and are you happy with having that that di i don't want to say disparity it, it puts a connotative tone on it but you have a cheaper setup, but a more expensive arrow. Do you feel that that was money well spent and money well placed, even though you have more of a budget bow on the back end? Yes. 
Uh, I'm going to, the, the last part, I'm going to answer that. Am I happy with having the budget set up and the uh, more money spent into the arrow? Yes. And maybe it's because I came into the game not having been brought up through uh, all the, the stuff that I should know about archery. I had to learn it firsthand. And I kept seeing that like the expandable didn't make sense to me. It was going to be something that there, there's something that's going to go wrong with it. Um, there's moving parts. Uh, it's got, it, you know, it's held together by some mechanism. It just opens up the possibility for things to go wrong. Do they work? Yes. But is there the possibility things will not happen? That is also a yes. So as I was looking at my arrow, I automatically was drawn towards the fixed broadhead. I was nervous getting into archery, and so I wanted something that I didn't have to think about that was going to be sharp as soon as I pulled it out of the quiver. Um, so that's where I really jumped into that choice of broadhead. And then as I went through um, my different arrows, as, you, as you're always starting out, I got one right off the, the rack. Uh, did I kill a deer with whatever Korean made white tail, uh, carbon arrow that was? Yeah, it, it worked. Um, but I wasn't happy with it. And then, you know, I, I step up and, I, and then for a while I was shooting the, the Easton FMJs and I really liked them until I started shooting more and more in the backyard and we either hit dirt and, you know, bend the aluminum. So now it's, you know, the arrows shot at that point, they, they tend to do that. Um, so that was, it's, but it brought the, the weight that I was looking for and then introduce uh, YouTube to my life and now putting uh, archery on there. I'm now watching people make these different setups. Some with, I can just slap it together from a Cabela's and go out to the woods. Others are putting more thought into what they're doing and then seeking out other companies to make their components. And that's where I ran into you and Troy Fowler, the ranch fairy. Um, so from that, I was then able to start the idea of, okay, I, I'm doing well with the fixed head, but if I want to make that more lethal, let's jump over to a single bevel. And so I then started shooting single bevels. And so my year, first year of that shot the deer and the deer fell over within eyesight. And that, that was a victory right there. That was, whew. There was really no track job at that point. Like I still followed blood because I don't want to become, I don't want to in, just anticipate the deer always falling within eyesight. I want to still keep my skills honed in there. But watching that deer fall with the single bellow was like, all right, that, that seems proof enough to me. And now I want to introduce something heavier. Now I want to introduce something that's going to bring more weight because I've now I see, saw the success. Can we compound that? Can we make it more? So that same FMJ, but now I put a brass insert into it and then the single bevel on the end. Shot a deer that year. It went 20 yards and I saw it tip. And it was again like, hey, this is more proof to the pudding that I think I am onto something right now. Where before I was doing a lot of tracking. I was still, you know, I didn't, I've lost, lost one animal. And man, that really, really sucks. I did not feel well about that. And I even have a couple where I had to leave it that night and go try it and find it the next morning. And you do, you find it, but man, it's like time is lost there at that point. You're, 
you're a little worried about meat quality at that point. But at the same time, like I could see success building as I got a heavier arrow and sticking with that single bevel. Um, then I did a talk or I uh, did a talk with uh, Troy and he really laid out all the components of uh, the Ashby setup. And as I was putting through this and I was beginning to find what arrow do I want to shoot, I won a raffle at some get together and I got a uh, dozen pack of these day six arrows. So I definitely cheated the system there by winning these things and not having to buy. Them. I would say though, I am all about now the micro diameter thick wall uh, arrows. I think I'm definitely, when it comes to my hunting setups, I'm going to continue to buy the higher, higher end arrows just for that, having them be as skinny as possible, but at the same time have that wall. Are they a 204 or are they a 166? Um, the one that you have. They're so a they're one super, six, they're six, the micro diameter. Very, yeah. Yeah. They're real small. And my buddies look at them and they're like, holy smokes, how's that even? And they, and then, yeah, you look at the end of it and you see how thick that carbon is. Um, they're a 300 spine. So they're not they're not quite up to the 200s or 250s, but it's a 300 spine. It is definitely stiff, and I do keep mine. I think they're at I think the they're cut at 28 inches, so they are a little longer. Um, the it's an insert outsert, and this is something I, I've had to really work on as far as uh, understanding how that's going to work. Um, there is a piece that actually has the inserts into the arrow. It's got uh, a smaller end that goes down way deep and that's where you, then you end up gluing it. And then there's a collar that fits over the top, not only of that insert, but then over the shaft combining to make this insert and footer setup. And it really adds strength to the front of that arrow. Um, and as, as you're looking with those, those Ashby studies, having an arrow that is going to withstand the impact that's going to be able to take whatever force is being applied to it is very critical because that's that's your delivery system there that's the actual business end of what you're trying to kill with as much as i want to say like yeah my my bow is a budget bow i'm not hitting the animal with my bow i'm sending the arrow and so that's where this money is being really put to uh uh put to work and I want to say probably the well it's the spear tip quote unquote and going with the pun here and it's the the broadhead, and I'm using a single, single piece steel uh, broadhead. It's a yeah single bevel. It's all machined out, and it's from RMS. It's called the Cutthroat, and it's 200 grains. Uh, so putting this whole package together, I forget what the GPI is on the arrow itself, but my total package that I'm sending you down range is 650 grains. I really wanted to get to that that level, uh, just as, just from talking to Troy and, and seeing like there's just something about that uh, that's going to you know bring down whatever animal you're wanting to go with. As far as like throwing out Plan A of shot placement and going with Plan B that hey maybe I knock it over and I have time to be able to shoot it again, that has really played in well. Um, I know he did make a point to say like having a heavy arrow isn't necessarily all that goes into the Ashby. You're really looking at the uh, forward of center on 
that whole thing. There's a lot of things that are coming into play. So having the broadhead do the steering by having a lighter arrow helps, but at the same time, the, the strength that I have going on here is, is something that I really see working. And then this past year, longest shot that I've made on an animal and killed it to have it go 15 yards and fall over. It just, it, everything worked together. Like as far as speed was definitely not what was, what was needed here, but I made the longest shot and that arrow carried all the way in, hit the animal, brought it down. And it was a successful night. That was, that was enough proof there to say like, Hey, I'm gonna start spending money as much it is, as it is sexy to get the latest bow or to have something that's really um, like technologically advanced you know, that's not the delivery. It's the delivery system. That's not what's doing the work. I'd rather put the work and the money into right. the work. Yet. And I have to say that when I started shooting, so I like, I'm not going to like be like, Oh yeah, I've been shooting heavy arrows for forever. Cause it's just not true. You know, I was the, now I was always a fixed blade guy. That was just kind of how I ran. I didn't start, I shot mechanicals for like two years and I was so disappointed in myself. I went back to shooting fixed blade heads and I like the Magnus stuff. I'm not sold on the single bevel yet. Troy's working on me though. But the the idea of having this heavier arrow when I started shooting them and I and you know for me I can get a 500 550 grain arrow without even trying cuz my arrows are so long, my spine's so high. Even with standard inserts and stuff, I can easily get over 500 grains with most 300 to 250 spine arrows. My bow was quieter, less vibration in the hand. Uh, my groups, I, I, everything seemed less erratic. It was like, it was less like I'm trying to get this arrow to the target as fast as I can. And more like, I want to try to place this arrow as easily as I can. I don't know. It was a totally different mindset and I still shoot, you know, like I, like I said, I can get to the 500 mark without even trying. And that's where I kind of live. And at my long draw length and shooting 60 to 65 pounds, mostly 60, I can blow through anything here in the Northeast. And it works out really well using a cut on contact. But for somebody like you, who's a little bit shorter, you know, your, your, um, your draw length's not as powerful, putting that heavy arrow on there, you're probably surpassing what I'm doing, shooting 500 grains at 31 inches, you're probably actually producing more momentum and more power and then throw that single bevel on there. <laughs> oh, good Lord. It's, it's a torpedo of death and it's so quiet. It's so efficient. The FOC, which is something I, I struggle to get because my arrows are just so daggum long, but FOC for you, you're set like 19%, something like that is just lethal. And that's what I, you know, people get up in arms about this whole heavy arrow thing. Oh, you know, heavy arrows have been around forever. But people have forgotten, and people have forgotten that it's not just for people like me. It's for people like you who are just the average. Well, I'm average. I'm average when it comes to bow hunting too. But you don't need you know the day six arrows are just wow. I mean, just fantastic. Love those things. But you don't need it to build that heavy arrow. You could go and do you know. I'm I'm thinking of other uh, micro damage. You could do like the victory vat for example, which is another one six six. The gold tip pierce in the lower straightness that would be a, a a more budget friendly option too. But you can get all of this power and all this momentum and all of this efficiency. You know, this whole deer running 15, 20 yards and tipping over. I don't think until the past three or four years I ever had that. You know, deer always run off. We got flashlights. We're crawling around. 
the past four deer that I've harvested shooting these heavier arrows have run 20, 30, 40 yards and fallen. Some of them have fallen on camera. And, you know, that is just an experience that I think people, once you see it, it just, everything just clicked for me. And clearly it's clicking for you. And that's just fantastic to hear. Now, I have a question about the single bevel because this is something that I struggle with. I am not, you are, you came up in the, um, in the meat industry, the poultry industry, to be more specific, you know, your way around knives and we'll get to the processing of the, of the animal later. You know how to sharpen things. The single bevel, is it a leap off a cliff in terms of your sharpening to get that, that really nice fine edge, or is that something you took to like a fish to water or in, in, I guess, going back to the first part, do you think it would be difficult for someone who's never really handled knife sharpening before? to deal with that single bevel or do you think probably just like you were able to just it, it's it's super simple super self-explanatory and you can easily touch up that cutthroat or any other type of single bevel anytime you're sharpening something there's going to be a learning curve as, as you're coming in um people will you know they'll, they'll see the knife sharpener where they can take the knife and like and and pull it through a bunch of times between a, a set of like v uh ceramic uh dowels and it, it works all right. Basically at that point, you're just honing it. Um, but when you're sharpening something, it takes a bit of practice. Did I screw up one of those heads at the very first part have to basically start over? Yeah, because I went and I was using, I'm actually <laughs> from the, from the Turkey farm, I found where our, our oil stones were. It looks like this ancient piece of cast with the stones that are in there. I had to flip them over because they had been concaved so much from old school knives that we had used on it. And here I wanted something that was super flat, but it took me, you know, it probably took me a day to get the idea of what I was trying to do. Now that's coming from somebody who I, I have had practice putting an edge on things. And when I'm sharpening like a kitchen knife, you know, I'm, I'm wanting the, the double bevel at that point, I'm wanting to come to a point and I want that uh, burr at the end to stand straight up. You know, people are talking, oh, this knife is dull. Well, if you actually put it through a steel or like run it on a steel, you, you can straighten that thing back out. It doesn't take very long. You don't need to sharpen necessarily as much as what you would think. You would just need to care for that um, burr or that top edge. Um, but with that double is there's a lot of, it works really well when you're able to slice or if you're, if you're trying to, um, yeah, if, if you're slicing the action, there's where there's a forward and backward motion. That's where a double edge really does well. But you don't have the opportunity to do this uh, slice action on a deer. You know, they talk about all oh, the angle and the slice that, that you're pushing through. It's all, it's a, it's a stab. You're pushing this arrow through. And that's where the double bevel is going to fault just because now it's creating drag, it's creating resistance. It needs the weight of the arrow to push it through. Is it still effective? Oh, heck yeah. You want to get those things as sharp as possible. So you get yourself a steel or you get your, yourself um, a stone that you're able to work on and putting your own edge on it is going to take your lethality with that head, whether it be a double bevel Magnus, whether it be a single bevel, whatever I'm shooting, it's going to up that lethality with it, the ability for it to cut. Um, one trick that I really like to do when it comes to sharpening it, and other people have done it too, 
is you take a Sharpie and you put it right on the cutting edge. And that's going to have you put whatever you're trying to sharpen, whether it be the single bevel or it be the double bevel. If you can darken that with a Sharpie, you're going to stick with the already factory set that's on that. So as long as you're able to replicate that factory angle and be able to then push that over the, over the stone, you're going to be able to take the factory finish off and give yourself a fresh, sharp edge that you're going to be able to work with. So yeah, like it's going to take some work. It's going to take, and there's some shortcuts that are out there. I know there's some, um, some new tools that are out there, the small grinding stones that people can get at home where you literally, you just draw the knife over the top of it. It's hard to do with uh, broadheads right now, at least on some of those. So it's, it's worth getting a stone. It's worth working that edge by hand. Um, and then even taking that one step further, finding yourself a ceramic. Or I think I learned this off of, was it Clay Hayes? I think it was Clay. He uh, rolled down the window of his truck and he used the top uh, edge of his window as his ceramic there. So he was able to get a super fine grit off of pulling that uh, edge over the top of that and then finish it off on a leather strop. You know, people think that's just left for uh, the old school barbers that have the, uh, the straight razor and they do a couple whips on that. Adding um, leather into your... Uh, into your sharpening system just takes that one step further. So as sharp as you can get it is, is going to be best. In fact, the, with this single bevel, this is the first broadhead that I've actually had to think about being careful about putting in it into the quiver and pulling out. I've never been scared of any of my other broadheads, you know, starting out like, Oh yeah, I just, you know, I, I, I they were sharp, but at the same time, they weren't scary sharp. And I pull out that, cutthroat now and it's like i have to keep my eye on it as i'm putting on the bow because i want to know right where that yeah, you'll, cutting slice, you'll slice your string right in half and and so this is something so people have you know messaged me about you know if i'll start shooting a single bevel and my thing that i've always said is with the sharpening thing i don't have the patience to learn that learning curve but also with a single bevel you know, I use the landscape system for years to sharpen up my double bevels. You know, 20, it's a preset thing. It's, it's a blind orangutan could do it. And that's just how I like to, to work with my double bevel knives and broadheads, and I get a nice razor sharp finish. But with a single bevel, the angle is so steep that you basically have to do them by hand on a flat stone. There's no, I mean, and they probably are some sharpeners, but I mean, you would probably recommend that if you're going to sharpen a single bevel, that they should probably just learn to sharpen it by hand. I'm guessing that would be your, your recommendation. It is. Um, not that I have to give somebody, you know, <laughs> another something else that they have to do, but you know, if you're going to make the jump into it anyway, you're shooting something that, you know, as, as far as the industry goes, you're kind of off on the side you're going to have to do a lot of your own work anyway. If you're creating this heavy arrow that the industry is still not really, they're still on the fringe about it. There's a lot of stuff you're doing DIY anyway. Being able to do this task, being able to sharpen your own broadheads is going to be one thing that you have control of. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a pride issue or a control issue that I have, but having the ability to, know the components of my arrow and to know what's going on or what's going wrong and be able to fix that 
that's something I enjoy. And so when I see that, oh, shoot, my broadhead is chipped, I don't have to rely on running to the big box store or going to Amazon online or wherever to get another set of broadheads or have my shop be able to do it. They're busy already doing a bunch of other things. I can then bring that into my own shop and be able to sharpen that and have that ready to go. That's that. I think just with that holistic grasp of being a hunter at this point is we're getting to a point now where a lot of this stuff, we can work on our own bows. A lot of this content you've been putting out is how can I tune my bow? How can I do this myself and understand what's going on? For the hunter now to just blindly go out and say, well, somebody else set this up for me. You're going to take responsibility for the shots that you put down range and to say, oh, the shop, you know, did something wrong. That's, that's not a responsible hunter at that point. You're putting the blame on somebody else and not putting in the practice or knowing your equipment. So when I send my broadhead down, I want to know that it's sharp and I put the work into it. And I think that'd be something great for your listeners or your guests or whoever to be able to take that upon themselves to say, you know what, when I'm shooting something, I know down right. And that's, going to be sharp. and that's why I take so much onus into tuning the bow and going through each and every single step, because, you know, you could, you could paint with a broader brush and say, well, we could try this, you know, Oh, make sure the broadhead sharp. Oh, your air should be heavy. How are you getting there? Because those things that you're doing at home is your success in the woods, right? The practice that the football player does off camera. And then when they step onto the field on Sunday afternoon, even though the lions still are going to lose, there's, you know, they're going to, uh, sorry, everyone. I just had to throw that in there anyway. So even, even though that is where the money is made because of all the practice and because of what is done at home and what effort and work is put in back. And that's why I spend so much time on tuning because you blaming the tune of the bow on anybody else is just not appropriate. Blaming the sharpness of your broadhead is not the company's fault. You are the one who owns. It's like blaming, it's like blaming my tires going bald on the manufacturer. No, I drove them. That's my fault. That's, that's my responsibility to take care of and maintain. So speaking though of things that uh, you have to really maintain a lot more than a compound bow, wood warps and uh, wooden bows in particular, you know, and all this talk of single bevels and heavy arrows is eerily reminiscent of the trad world. And it is something that you know infinitely more about than I do, but you have a struggle stick and you like to take her out and sling some arrows. And I just want to talk briefly about it because a lot of listeners aren't trad listeners, but it'd be interesting to talk about because you flip flop. And why do you continue to shoot trad even though compound has been your main method of hunting, right? You haven't been successful with it. We talked prior to the podcast, haven't been successful with the trad bow yet, but why you feel it's such an important part of your archery life to continue to shoot that trad bow, even though the compound really is the one that's seeing the success in the woods. Really when I started hunting it and then picking up on archery, being that this time slot that I had, it opened up Pandora's box that I just kind of fell into it. And there was so much to understand. There was so much to grasp. And at some point in my, in my archery setup, especially with my compound, my, list of things that I was checking off was my mental checklist was super long and not to say that shooting in the yard wasn't fun. There was a lot of anxiety around it. I mean, that opens the door for target panic, for being afraid to pull the trigger, for being just unconfident with what you're doing. And 
but I love the archery aspect of, I wanted to keep shooting, but there was this anxiety that I had around at least the compound at that point. Cause there was like, if I'm going to get better, I have to spend more money. And I didn't like the way that that was going. A friend of mine invited me down to uh, one of the big, biggest trad shows in the nation was the Kalamazoo traditional archery show here in Michigan. And I went down there and was blown away of the whole community that's in and among traditional archery. It really is a bunch of guys that love archery and love to take things into their own hands. I mean, as I'm there, there are guys literally with draw knives pulling on these staves and these long pieces of wood, creating a bow before our eyes. There were folks that, there were boyers all over the place. A boyer is somebody who makes the bow that doesn't machine it out of something. It doesn't put a CAD program to work. It's a dude over there whittling the knock ends so that he can put a string on that, you know, his wife wove together like later that night. And it really brought about like this idea of, of woodsmanship and of craftsmanship into it. Uh, I kind of got caught up in that majesty and that romance about it because it really does bring you back into a time where, yeah, it's, it's not the arrow, it's the Indian to use that phrase where it's, it's the person behind the bow that has to put the work in in order to get the success. I did. I picked one up. I picked up, and it's a, a reflex, deflex, long bow. Uh, for, your, for your listeners who are not fully into the trad world, there's several different shapes. Uh, there's the traditional D-style long bow where there's no flare in the knock ends. Then it gets into a reflex, deflex where it's still... Um, the definition of the longbow is that the string does not touch the limb, but with the reflex deflex, it flares uh, slightly out and it gets more, more of a, a flicking action. It, it basically adds that like slight energy uh, saver in there that I can get a little bit more energy into the string uh, to the arrow. And then it goes into the recurve world where now you're getting into these very elaborate looking bows. And a lot of them, I mean, takes lots of different species of woods and it's really a piece of art at that point. So I grabbed that bow with the intention of having it make me a better archer. And it really showed me where I was as far as an archer. Terrible. That's where I started. (laughs) I, I, you know, you see all the trad guys with their, uh, they've got a cover on there or they've got a forearm guard on yeah. their uh, bow arm. Yeah. They got, they got a forearm guard and yeah, you definitely need one of those. Oh, it's just a piece of wood and a string. That sucker will bite. That'll bite harder than any compound that I've been struck with. And it does. I mean, oh, the ridge that comes up, it's black and blue and you don't dare shoot for a day because you want the swelling to get out of but then at that point, you, you're really lining up the arrow. There's several different systems to use, whether it be string walking or gap shooting, but you pick one of these that works for you. And eventually you get into a moment where you're just instinctively shooting. It's, you equate it to throwing a baseball where I'm not having to line up a peep. I'm not having to line up a pin. I am drawing and shooting. And through these repetitions, you get to the point where you start to gain success. You're now hitting the target. 
you're now taking that instead of just hitting the target. Now you are starting to group and you're having to really focus on your form on getting that arrow where it needs to go. Having that experience and then right at the time of, I shouldn't say right at the time because I'm continually grabbing the compound to make sure I'm still fluent with that. But when I set down the traditional bow and I pick up the compound bow, it has done, it's been working with my form and it has trained me to be able to hold longer. It's trained me to be able to now with the aid of the peep and the sight to be able to shoot that bow more accurately and more efficiently. And so using that and going back and forth between the two, I have seen both my compound and traditional game uh, get much better. And I enjoy going out into the woods or out into the yard and be able to shoot practice because it is challenging. I can't think of anything else. Even at the compound where I'm shooting at paper versus even the, you know, now I got a stump that I'm trying to shoot with the longbow. My whole focus has to be on that. And, you know, the, the dopamine that I get from shooting that uh, arrow and having it hit right exactly where you want it to go, man, that is a small victory right there. And you enjoy that. You learn from that. So using that, it has made me a better archer. There's always the, and I'm still working on that, the, the idea where I'm going to take it out and I'm going to then be able to take an animal with the longbow. I tried it last year. I went out for a couple sits. The opportunity didn't arise, but it was, it was there. The potential was there. If a deer came within 15 yards, you know, maybe I needed to like sniff my knee and have it that close, close where I can be able to shoot it. And taking it out, I did sit the ground just for the better angle. Uh, I'm hoping this year that it actually gets a chance that I can be able to do that as well. Um, but yeah, there's there's the potential for that. But at the same time, like I don't put like a kill with the compound higher than I would with a kill with the with the trad. Just I mean, I would enjoy both at that point. My goal out there is to to harvest the animal. But there's just something about like the work that I've put in to have that small victory to be able to say, hey, I took it with the longbow. That's just something I'm working for. Yeah, and I, you know, the shooting traditional archery is something that I, I, I don't even really have experience in. And but everybody that I've talked to, and obviously now, of course, you included, they've said it makes me better with the compound. And it kind of, I don't know if like it, it does, but it doesn't translate from compound to like a crossbow. Right. Just because I shoot a compound doesn't mean I'm really good with a crossbow. Just because I shoot a crossbow doesn't mean I'm really good with a gun. It's just it's strictly that that connection there. And the the focus that you bring up is so important because I, you know, I've been so close. I've shot one three hundred on a Vegas spot my entire life. And the focus that I had to have for each and every single shot to make that happen was so high. That's something that as a compound shooter you don't really think about because if you're just bow hunting in particular, you can be accurate enough to put, you know, six arrows in a three, four inch group at 20 yards. And that's perfect. That's perfectly fine to hunt with. But when you are shooting a trad bow, you got to watch your feet. You got to watch your hips. Is your right quad more tense than your left quad? You know, are you canting the bow the exact same can? I mean, there's like 57 million different variables and that doesn't even include you know, are you actually releasing the arrow correctly? Like that part just blows my mind. The actual release, you know, we, we are so, um, 
spoiled as compound shooters being able to use mechanical release and how clean that is each and every single time even a cheap compound release is 500 million times more efficient and repeatable than a trad shooter it's just even the best trad shooters will be able to tell you that the bare boat guys you know so i i, I want to dip into it but i'm afraid that as soon as i get my toes wet i'm going to be like in over my head because that's the kind of thing you know that's for me like i i obsess over that type of archery and it's clear that you are being sucked into that as well um now i will say this because me shooting a compound even though firearm season in pennsylvania is a huge it's it's such an ingrained ritual you know for us for the longest time it was the monday after thanksgiving here in pennsylvania it was an ingrained ritual now we've opened up on a saturday but now that you're shooting a trad bow like for me okay let me get back up for me shooting a compound bow i don't enjoy rifle hunting anymore i have nothing wrong with rifle hunting but if during the firearm season i take my bow out because that's just what i enjoy do you see yourself ever kind of being at a point with your trad equipment when you can continue to gain confidence and and momentum with it that you eventually kind of look at your compound and go eh, like i don't really enjoy it anymore or or is it still like, nah, it's meat on the table. It doesn't matter how it got there. It's, it's good organic meat on the table. That is the main focus. And that's why I'm still into hunting at this point is my, my love for what I'm being able to put on the table. Um, I, to be able to have like an animal that's out there naturally growing, it's, it's not confined to anything, but yet just brings amazing nourishment to my family is something that I really want to go for. And I mean, I enjoy the, all the aspects of hunting, you know, going for the big buck and throwing out the cameras. Like I do, I get wrapped up into uh, all of that. And I do, I set goals where I'm like, I want to sneak in and try to get there. But really at that, you know, as soon as opening day hits here in Michigan in October, it's, it's grocery time and we want to be able to go get that. And I enjoy that so much with my boys being as young as they are, I'm still quite a few years away from this. But at the point, there's going to there's the possibility that there's going to be three huntivore boys out there on the same piece of property. That if they get a deer, you know, that's that's more meat on the table. That's one less thing that I need to worry about. Maybe at that point, when I get you know one or two sons out there with a compound or with a shotgun, I don't have to pick it up. I can really dive into the romance of that. I see that kind of happening. Uh, but right now it's definitely like, there's a whole pressure thing that I even put on myself that once the first animal is down, it becomes more of like the, the chess game for the big buck that I, I don't have the opportunity to wait for late doe season, uh, being on a poultry farm, specifically turkeys, Thanksgiving is the end all be all, uh, for my, my family. So that's where, I jump back into the family work and do that. And so I get maybe a couple days for shotgunning. Um, so it's really my efforts put on to the bow season, especially those first couple weeks. If I can put down a big nanny doe, it's, I'm just the happiest clam ever. Cause then I can then, you know, put her away, but still be able to continue to hunt for the big buck. Have I probably put scent out for those first couple weeks? Have I probably already moved a couple things? Yeah, but at the same time, that's the that's the way my game is being played right now. Um, with public land, though, being me butting right up near uh, the state or the state ground line, 
it's also nice to be able to have all that acreage to just be able to scout and move around on. And it really kind of opens up those doors. So that's where my first couple of weeks come in is like, yeah, it's grocery time. So eventually there'll be a day where I can then fully dive into uh, uh, the trad system. But right now it is, it's a great trainer and amazing challenge for once I get uh, that first one down. Yeah, I absolutely hear you on the groceries because like, I don't know, I don't know about your family, but we can, we can house two deer in a year. Like, and there's, and it's really like two and a half of us. Cause mine are, my kids are three and four years old. Yours are skosh older, but not by much. Like how many deer could you guys go through it a year easily? Um, I put three deer away this past year. I, one, I killed myself. And then I've also got a really keen eye for like the ones that get hit like that morning. Um, this year, <laughs> this is a fun story. As I'm heading into work, is, so everybody, everybody knows here. Nick is Nick is picking up roadkill. That's <laughs> that's what we're. He's as he says, the keen eye for ones that were hit. They they were hit by Karen's Honda uh, fit there. So anyway, exactly. Continue on. So Karen's got a busted out <laughs> headlight, and I happen to see from like the like past day. Like, that's, yeah, that's fresh. Um, I had one that definitely died that morning. And I picked it up and my boy was in the, in the back and I'm like, buddy, we don't have time to uh, take this home. And he's like, pick it up anyway. We'll take it to school with us. Cause he was driving with me at school. So sure enough, I loaded it into the back and I, I left it in the back of my truck. Granted, it's like free. I mean, it is, it's snowing, it's freezing, low temperatures. Um, but I was able to put her in the back of the truck and drove to work. Did uh, the first day there, I ended up, at lunchtime, going back to the truck, moving out back towards uh, some wooded property, and I ended up field dressing it right there so it could sit the remainder of the day on your lunch on my break. lunch break. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I drive back in. My oh. my principal is also a hunter, but he was just like, "Dude, you have taken this to a whole new level." But I I'm like, "Hey, this is oh, a big deer. I I put it away." And you know what? COVID hit, and I didn't really have to go find meat. I knew exactly where my meat was. It was in my freezer. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's where I'm at, too. Like, I would love to do the trad side. And this is why there are times where I still take out the firearm because, well, not the past couple of years, I've been very blessed to harvest animals, tag out in the archery season. But there have been times where I had to take the gun out because – I had no meat in the freezer. I knew it was going to be rough because we live 90 plus percent venison. You know, we'll have chicken every now and then and that sort of stuff. But predominantly, we're living off the venison here. And uh, if I don't, that pressure that's on that first week to shoot a doe in particular, because, you know, there's more of them than there are bucks. You know, that's a, that's a big thing. And shooting in the trad world, phew, you got to get them in tight, 10, 15 yards. And I'd rather be able to take that. You know, I've never taken a 40-yard shot. You've got that on me. The farthest I've ever shot is 35. So uh, kudos to you. You're taking down the average jack. But, I mean, just it, just, it's just, it is a pressure thing. And, and doubling my effective distance, quadrupling or more my repeatability and shot repeatability and comfort level shooting that thing out of a tree, um, yeah, I completely understand. But let's go back to the, let's go back to the meat here. So for those of you that don't follow Nick on the Huntivore podcast, although you should definitely do that, um, big onus here on the education of meat, recipes, processing wild game, working with wild game. He's got a lot of great guests on, uh, 
that are very well versed in the butchering process and so on and so forth. So one thing that I know that I'm always, even to this day, still daunted by when you, when you get a whitetail and you hang it up or an elk, heaven forbid, if you get something that large and you skin it out and you're literally staring at a year's worth of meat, but it's literally on the animal. What is step one? I know for me, I look at it and go like, oh my gosh, so you got this thing here and this muscle here and you got 50, 60, 70, 80 pounds of meat on a critter. How do you, where do you start? So I think for, for you, Nick, outside of the Huntivore podcast, if somebody's first starting out into archery hunting and they're going to have to start processing their own meat, what would be their kind of like first beginner resources, you know, books, magazines, videos, et cetera, that'd be a good place to start when it comes to learning how to start the butchering. Let's forget, we'll leave the recipes and cooking for a second. That's a, whew, that could take years, but at least in the depth of the butchering process, like what's a good resource or a pile of resources for them to start? Gotcha. Um, very first thing is, yeah, you're looking at your downed animal right there. Take a deep breath and just chill out because that's the first thing you want to have happen for that animal is get that thing as cold as possible. You don't want to freeze it, but you want to get it cooled down and you've got some time. You want to let that animal hang. Um, there's a lot of things where people will get that animal and it's, it's a little bit warm out and they get it to their processor and the processor's itchy, itchy to get started and they process it either that day or the day before and, or the day after. And the, the more time that you can let that animal hang up until, up until like, you know, seven to 10 days, like that's a prime time that you have to be able to let that animal just hang either with hide on or with hide off, however you manage to get that done. But you want to be able to just be able to let that thing hang. And that gives you then the time to be able to look at these resources. I mean, if you've got the time available, look at those now before you get out there but at the same time once you put one down you still have about seven days before you really got to get into that knife work you've got the time to be able to let that animal hang and to really put together your your system that you want to go for now if you're going to a processor great getting that animal cold before you take it there and giving the processor the best available um meat and condition of the meat to be able to cut, that's going to be in your benefit to be able to get that. Um, taking it to them hot, I mean, even though they've got the hot uh, chiller that is going to get it down cool and then be able to go into their, their cut room, they can do a good job. But the more that you can help them out, especially as they've getting more and more deer in, you bringing it cold is going to be able to help produce better venison for you on the front end. If you're wanting to dive into doing your own cut up, there's a couple way or a couple resources that you should really look into. Um, first one, I did an episode with um, a gentleman out of a disease center in Montana. Now I forget his name. I'm gonna have to go back and find it. But anyway, it's yeah, number it's episode 34 of the Huntivore, and we talk about the whole idea of being able to not get rid of but deactivate CWD uh, on your non-porous equipment and your cutlery. If you're processing your own animal in a CWD zone, which I know Pennsylvania now has this wonderful uh, thing that we have here in Michigan, and it's becoming a thing, <laughs> uh, it's a great 
it's it's like a first win first off for home processors and people who enjoy venison is to say that if i cut this animal up and it comes back positive uh now what do i have to get rid of the table do i have to get rid of the knives um you don't as long as they're non-porous um and i go through a whole discussion with him he has and in the in my own notes are there i have the link to his study that shows that um, they can deactivate the uh, prion with bleach, and it's a five-minute soak with a 50% concentration of bleach and water. So by giving it five minutes uh, with your cutlery in there, it doesn't get rid of the prion. The prion's still going to be there. If it's on the blade, it's on the blade. But at the same time, it deactivates it. And what happens is, is that if you were to ingest that prion, it would not multiply in your system. You would just pass it through. It's inactive. It's not, you can't kill it. It's a prion. But the idea is, is that you can use your cutlery. You can use your table as long as it's non-porous. And in fact, I'm looking for a sheet of stainless steel myself to switch over to that being my cutting surface. Um, so for home processors who are in the CWD zone, that is a great episode to just bone up on and a great resource to have at your disposal. Um, another gentleman that I did very early on, he was probably one of the guys that was most pivotal into me jumping into my own venture here with Huntivore is that you get your first deer and yeah, you, you don't know what to do. My very first deer was 90% uh, well, I don't want to say 90%. It's probably 80% burger and 20% what we referred to as steaks, but we also call them giblets because they're just really small cuts of meat that you end up, I mean, they're great. They're delicious. I think I heard some guy from Pennsylvania also refer to them as speedies, but there's the idea that you can then have all these little chunks and then put them on the grill and shish kebabs and whatnot. That's what that deer turned into. It was not my greatest display. Um, I was going from a, a two-legged critter to a four-legged critter. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but yeah, link this guy as well. Uh, Scott Ree, or on YouTube, he's also called the Scott Ree Project. Now, he's out of England. Um, I enjoy his banter. He goes on, he voices over himself as he cuts up these different uh, animals. He does both wild and domestic. Um, but the man is just a master at his craft. In fact, that's what he's done for his living and he wants to be able to uh, preserve how animals have been cut up. Just like here in the U.S., things are getting pushed out into uh, factory style uh, agriculture where it's how many animals can we get through at once. And the, the craft of it has you know, either taken over been by machine or just you know, processing center where they're cutting off whole sections and then using a bandsaw, which is a great effective way to use it. But at the same time, he goes into the craft of how to take this animal apart. And he does a beautiful job of you looking at a whole animal and breaking them up into quarters. And then those quarters into primals. And those primals into subprimals. And then at that point, now we're talking steaks. So instead of looking at a whole animal and being daunted by a year's worth of meat that I need to get off this animal, it breaks it down into smaller sections and it makes it something that even a first time cutter can digest. Cause just as you were saying, you know, you, you enjoy going to the processor. It's quick, it's easy. 
and you're daunted by that one thud of this huge piece of meat here to be able to break that down and to understand like, Oh, okay. There's like four muscles in the leg that I can get out and keep as whole pieces. That's a great way that I can then freeze that meat and store it. Um, now I want to make steaks. I'll make steaks now pulling it out of the freezer because now I've preserved that meat. You know, it's less surface area as a bigger piece of meat. You're not exposing the grain to as much oxygen, keeping that frozen as a large piece lasts longer. Let's say the power goes out. That happens here in Michigan quite often that I cannot panic when the power goes out, knowing it's going to come on a couple hours later, that that meat is still going to be entirely frozen. Smaller right, cuts right. tend to thaw quicker. Yeah. I, whenever, you know, whenever I first started butchering my own stuff, it's like, I just, I, I just kind of like went at it like a half starved Raven, you know, I'm just like hacking off like big chunks, like pecking at it with my face, you know, no, it's not that, but it's like, but it is. And, and when you start looking at it as muscle groups, like, and I, as, as kind of broken down as this might sound a little bit weird, but we, we know our own muscle groups biceps and triceps and quads and our glutes we are mammals just like a whitetail is a man it's the exact same thing how would you break down those muscle groups when i when i started approaching from that angle light bulbs started going off all over the place is that it's not one giant steak it's it's in sections it's in groups it's in it's in easy cuttable things because i mean oh man i can just you're bringing up the giblets or the sliders or what speedies yeah speedies speedies is like I like I would just cut like right through the ball roast, like right through that. I forget what which sirloin is that. Is that to, or no? That's top round. No, that is the sirloin top. That is the top sirloin sir- cap. That okay. that's the ball roast. Right. And then there's the bottom round, and then there's the top round, all on the hind leg. Right. I used to just like chop through that like just right down the middle of the muscle group, not like, not like peel away the muscle, like just right down the middle of it, like just butcher the thing, not in a good butchering way, just awful. But anyway, your resource, please. Gotcha. The resource. Um, I'm myself jumping into the YouTube thing, at least to like bring visual to what we were talking about at the hunt of Um, I've only got one out there so far and I did the hind quarter. So like, just like you were talking, um, I go through and in that video, I take something that's, yeah, you got the whole hindquarter here and it looks daunting, but I run my knife basically through seams all the way through that. So I'm not actually cutting through muscle most of the time. It's literally just separating those muscle groups. So you reference that uh, the ball roast that's on top or the sirloin cap, um, that muscle itself, yeah, as you peel away those pieces, it just reveals itself to you. And so the work is magnificently less when you look at it that way as opposed to as you're first coming at it like shoot cut this and oh well now I've ruined that piece and at that point you know you you might as well just throw it into burger at that point there's definitely nothing wrong with burger I love burger myself but at the same time if you want to have more roasts more steaks looking at these muscle groups is a great way to be able to do that and then throw me like hmm because you have, you, you have, you're, you're getting ready to like make your own book. It sounds like it seems like like I still am trying to like the hot dog man, like the 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 Huntivore hot dog. I love me venison bratwurst, venison hot dogs. Like that is my guilty pleasure. Venison summer sausage, any of the super. Let's throw a whole bunch of cheese mustard crackers at it. Like that is like ha ha ha. Like I love me a steak and backstrap. Don't get me wrong. 
burgers are great, but that stuff is just like my thing. If you had to pick though, I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. We didn't talk about this one, but if you had to pick like a first recipe idea or a resource they could find a good first recipe idea because people that are getting into hunting venison is not beef now there are ways you can prepare it that would kind of taste like beef but it's not it's not necessarily gamey or an off flavor but it's a different flavor it's just like how chicken tastes different than duck it's the exact same idea it's a totally different meat and flavor profile is there a muscle group and a recipe that's like a no fail even if you are, you know, you use a smoke alarm as a timer type of person when it comes to the kitchen, is there a recipe that's that kind or a resource that's that kind of easy for people that are getting into and harvesting their first deer? Well, I know I'm putting on, on the spot with that one. Well, I've, I've got my soapbox right here. Okay, excellent. You have picked something. I am, I am so jazzed about this one. And it's the idea that I'm... I'm using temperature to tell me when it's done and that there's a way that you can take venison, whatever cut it's going to be. I have found great success with backstrap or be it a smaller muscle group. The uh, inside round, as you take apart that hind leg, there's another muscle in there. Uh, we call it like a mock tender. It's almost like another tender loin, yeah. very long shape. Um, it does have larger, um, strand structure inside of it uh so that actually applies really well to what i'm going to be talking about right now and it's the idea of going using a probe thermometer and reverse searing your meat and this oh i see your arm pumping you oh, i love the reverse there. sear <laughs> oh i love it so much and what it does is it just gives you the control to be able to take a very lean piece of meat that you've got zero room for margin and that you can be able to get it done to the temperature that you desire well first guys explain, will take their back strap first oh, ex first explain this the so i worked in the restaurant industry for forever you worked in the meat industry for forever sear and how a, like how you know if you want to get a steak that's rare but it's still charred on the outside that's that is a regular sear explain that for those people who might not understand the sear and why we like reverse sear so much better for wild game gotcha from a restaurant a regular sear a forward sear or whatever you want to call it is you are taking that meat and you're putting it onto a very hot surface this is where you're hearing about like those uh griddles that are getting to like 500 550 600 degrees and what you are doing is you are it's not the Mylar, it's the Maillard effect. That's what you want to have happen. And that is the caramelization of proteins and sugars on the surface of the meat. And what it's doing is it's, it's crispening that up and it's creating a crust. And we just long for that as humans. Uh, that same thing happens on like the, the crispy edges of, um, of eggs where you get the whites that really kind of brown up on the edge and you just really enjoy it. That's that same effect. French fries. Uh, that's that same effect there. The browning and the, the caramelization of those sugars and proteins that give this crust. There's a lot to be discussed about this crust. Some people even claim that that is what seals in the flavor. 
totally wrong. It does not seal in anything. Uh, moisture is still allowed to go in and out so that even when you think you've got a really good sear, oh, the moisture is trapped inside. I can cook this longer. No, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you want to slow that down. The idea is you're giving high amounts of heat, high amounts of energy to the outside of that steak, and then it's going to then penetrate into the meat. Now, in a in a controlled setting where it's, say, like a by a trained chef or a trained cook on the cook line at a restaurant, they have that timed out. They have really worked well as to how much I can do this so that when the waitress comes to you and says, I want a, or comes to them and says, hey, this customer wants a medium steak, they know how much time it is to be able to do that. Or they've got their own thermometers that they're ready to use. Um, in fact, this was a thing from Hank Shaw that he told me is that he, when he worked in the restaurant, he would sear one side really hard. And then depending on what the customer wanted, then he would flip and then that would be on the time. So there would be the display side of the steak that had the hard sear, whereas the other side may be a little gray because it went on a slower heat. So he was talking presentation on that, on that side there. So that's what a regular sear is, is applying the heat hard, fast to the outside, and then letting that heat and energy penetrate the meat and then begin to cook the inside. One of the downsides of doing that at, say, a home kitchen or on your barbecue is that you end up what's called a bullseye effect. And the bullseye effect is just like a, a face of a, a Vegas target that you have the outermost ring, which is your sear, which is delicious. And then just inside of that is well done. And then inside of that is, uh, is medium. And then you get to your medium rare and your rare in the center. You want to be able to maximize as much of that medium rare and rare, as long as that's what the, the style you're going for. I really appreciate a medium rare venison steak. And if I can maximize that and lose out on a bunch of the well, that's going to help me out. So then taking this process of reverse sear, I am adding a slow amount of heat, a slow amount of energy onto the meat. And I use the oven first for this. So I take that meat, season it with salt. Usually, this, I mean, you can throw some pepper on there as well, whatever you'd like to do. Um, but you take that piece of meat and you put it into a 300 to 325 degree oven. It's a slower oven that that heat is going to hit that steak and that energy is going to go into the meat at a slower rate than what you would be searing it on a, um, on a, a skillet or on a grill or whatever. This step also works really well for whole cuts. If you've already made medallions, it is going to be a little bit difficult. But if you pull out a six to 80 inch piece of backstrap that you left whole because you wanted to freeze it and have less surface area to salvage as much of that meat as possible, now you can put that whole piece of backstrap in that oven and roast it. And here's where then your probe thermometer comes in. When that sucker gets to the temperature that you want, 120 being rare, 125 to 130 being medium rare, you bring that, that temperature up five degrees less than your desired temp, and you can pull it and rest it. Let that finish doing its thing. 
at that moment, now you start your sear. You're going to get, I usually use a cast iron pan. You can also use a grill and get that ripping hot. Now you apply the crust. And it's literally only maybe 45 seconds per side that you're doing. You're just now adding that Maillard effect on the outside of that piece of meat. So now when you pull that off the grill at that point or off the, the cast iron skillet, you are left with a bullseye effect that is very much reduced in those outer rings. You have a sear on the outside, a very minute well, and you have maximized the amount of medium rare or rare, whatever you're looking for on that venison, giving you the best steak that you are ever going to have. <laughs> He's over here applauding Just me. Well done. <laughs> Just super well done. Yeah. And, and so like why for, so everybody talks about, Venison is a leaner meat. It's a healthier meat. It's much more organic, and it is beef. You know, if you go look at, if you go and compare, uh, you know, comparable, let's say sirloins uh, off of a beef, you'll see all the marbling of the white of the fat on the inside. There is next to none in a whitetail, and just because of their diet, they're constantly active, the size of the animal, so on and so forth. And it'll vary across the country. You know, in the in the Midwest where they have a lot of ag, they'll be a little bit fatter. Here in the Northeast, we have very little. Uh, comparatively, and so it, it's not as much. So doing that reverse sear, you you don't lose all of the the juice of the fat. You can get away with it with a beef steak if you do the regular front forward sear or regular sear because it doesn't lock in the juice. It's gonna come out. Like if you watch the pan, it's gonna come out. Okay, and if you do that with a venison steak, you're going to absolutely turn it into a hockey puck if you're not careful, depending on the thickness of it. Doing it in the reverse. And doing a slow, it doesn't allow what little fat is in it and what little moisture is in it to begin with to completely evaporate. Then real quick hot sear, it makes it a very nice steak, but keeps it from being dry. That's the number one thing people, or one, one of the top two things people have with venison. Oh, it's gamey. And that's often because they're uh, not getting rid of a lot of the connective tissue and that sort of stuff that you don't have to get rid of from the grocery store because those animals don't have as much because they're not as active and they're not, I mean, you gotta remember deer jumping eight foot fences from, you know, they can get over a car, cows not doing that, right? They don't need that level of connective tissue and muscular structure. And so when you do that different cooking style and, and just go backwards because of the fat content and the leanness of the meat, it just makes it so much better. I couldn't agree more. I'm so glad that you said reverse here because <laughs> it's just, it is. It, and it, when I remember listening to the episode where you talked about it and I had done it once or twice before, but now I just won't, I won't do it any other way. It just, it, I have burned a lot of steaks on the grill I've, and they end up with a very, you either go super rare on a venison steak with a burnt crust or you just burn the whole dumb thing. And, and that's just the way it is. If you go reverse here, you could actually get a medium, a medium rare, even a medium well, if you really can time it perfectly. Um, but I wouldn't go any better than medium rare with a venison steak or even a beef steak. Oh, it's just magnificent. But anyway. I and it's something it. to work on too, that you do, you have some points where um, as much as you know, I can go and cooking is one of those double-edged swords where at the same time, like there's a science to it. We're giving you something to work off of as far as a degree temperature, especially in baking, like things have to happen in a, in an order, but at the same time, you're able to kind of play with different flavors. You're able to have the artistic side of it. So having the practice of using that reverse sear a number of times, you're going to get 
really good at it. And it's going to be something that you're going to be able to take something that wasn't as desired, say like the inside loin. Everybody wants the tenderloin, excuse me, everybody wants the tenderloins, everybody wants the back strap, but you get something that's like that, like an inside round of an animal on one of these hindquarters. And it's a piece of meat that usually either gets thrown into grind or neglected and it does. It revel, just like you said, turns into a hockey puck at that point because of the muscle structure. But if you can pay attention to it and have a plan to reverse sear it, and then even on the backside, I guess just as much as reverse searing it, another important bit is to rest the meat after it's been on that grill. It's just gone through a lot of heat and a lot of pressure and a lot of stress. And the moisture inside of that is going to be very sporadic. By you pulling it off from that hot surface and resting it for 10 minutes, you know, it's not going to get cold. It's not going to get icy, but it's going to allow the moisture to redistribute throughout that piece of meat. So now you're at the point of presentation where you have guests. Maybe it's somebody you're introducing to venison for the very first time and you slice off a piece of that and you actually make a round cut steak that you then serve to them with a beautiful medium rare through it. Like that's a home run right there. Does it take practice? Does it take work? Just like sharpening a single bevel for the first time. Yep. You're going to screw up a couple, but at the same time, it's something that you can take something you've worked so hard at. You've, you've hunted this animal, you've pursued this animal, you've brought it in, done all this work to cut it up. Why botch it on the very end of it? Bring the best to the table at that point. I think the best advice that I've ever gotten about when it comes to preparing wild game and everything is that you didn't rush when you were doing your scouting. You didn't rush when you hang your trail cams. You didn't rush when you were practicing with your bow all summer. You didn't rush when you were cleaning it. You didn't rush when you were breaking the animal down. Do not rush it when you put it on the plate because it, that, that ruins everything. That is the kingpin to the whole scenario. And, you know, there's 57 different ways to 57 million different ways to produce venison and, and have it in a, in a healthy way and in a very flavorful way. But don't rush it. You don't rush anything else. Definitely don't rush that. Amen. Amen. Well, Nick, I thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It has been an absolute pleasure to see you once again, old friend. Please plug yourself with your social media, various things, podcast, everything else. Yeah, again, the pleasure's all mine, Nate. This has been awesome. Um, but yeah, if you do want to check out some of the stuff from Huntivore, we are a podcast. You can find us wherever podcasts are, are being launched. I know we're on iTunes and Podbean and uh, Stitcher and all of those. So go ahead and look at that. I'm also a part of, uh, I mean, your average Jack, but I mean, just relatable content when it comes to hunting. I'm a part of the Sportsman's Nation. And we're a group of podcasters and YouTubers that are really bringing content from the everyday guy. We've got um, myself and uh, our CEO, Dan Johnson, that just does an awesome job. I mean, the dude's got nine fingers and he's still rocking it. So it's been a great to be a part of that. So check out their content as well. Um, I do have my hindquarter video. Um, so if you're looking to process your own animals, um, that's one spot to check that out. And that's on the Sportsman's Nation YouTube channel. Uh, shoulders should be coming out here soon. I'm just putting the final details on that video as well. And I'm hoping to work my way all the way through the animal. So, but yeah, check us out as a podcast. And I think I've got some uh, recipes there as well. So yeah, 
Thank you so much, Nate. Hey, buddy, I appreciate it. And again, folks, we will put all the links to the episodes that we talked about, the Hunt of War. We'll put links to the episodes that I've done with Nick from the Hunt of War, as well as other things down in the description of the podcast. Once again, I hope you enjoyed and I hope you're able to get outside, enjoy the sport of archery, archery hunting if you so choose. Definitely enjoy God's beautiful creation and we'll get to see you next time.